I'm Ellen Liebeter. I'm Jake Morecambe. Welcome to Think Sustainability on 2SER, where we look at practical solutions for a better planet. Today on the show, we are getting into some serious nitty and gritty. We're looking at how we can become more sustainable with our waste. And I'm not referring to the waste in your bins. I'm talking our waste, human waste. Our poop, essentially. Yes. Who are we? Our pee, our poo, all the smelly fun stuff. (laughs) You'll hear about sustainable nappies. Also, we've got some horror baby poo stories in store for you. My favourite. And you'll hear about developing sanitation facilities for some of Alaska's indigenous communities, which are so far off the grid, they've been moving their waste around with buckets and throwing it into a nearby pile. Uh, That's pretty insane. But first, a journey down the rabbit hole. Now, if you're anything like me, when I go to the toilet, I'm not really thinking about where the toilet water is going. Well, not all the time. It's not something particularly pleasant to think about. When I've flushed it, it's no longer my problem, right? Well, it may no longer be my problem, but it does become somebody else's. But whose exactly? Where is this water going? And more importantly, where's all this other stuff going? So I set out to find some answers, and here's where I ended up. Hi, my name's Bianca McPherson. I currently work at Malabar Wastewater Treatment Plant at Sydney Water as a production officer. So the Malabar facility is on the southern headlands, which is about 14 kilometres away from the Sydney city centre. And if we're looking at where the water is coming in from, the Malabar facility spans an area of about 630 square kilometres from the Tasman Sea over to Glenfield in Sydney's far southwest. So that's a pretty big distance. And so we're currently in a little underground pathway. Where, where are we going? So we're just basically um, going down to what is the start of the treatment process at Malabar Wastewater Treatment Plant. Most of the uh, treatment processes that treat the influent coming in are located in an underground plant, so we're just going to walk down to the start of the process, which is our screenings process. Let's go. So Bianca mentioned there's something called effluent. What is that? It's essentially just another term for wastewater. So wastewater is the sewage that's coming into the plant for treatment, you know, and that's made up of all that water that's going down your drain. So the the water from your showers, from your bathtubs, from your kitchen sinks, the grey water from your washing machines. So essentially anything that comes down your drain is basically wastewater. And of course, what's coming from your toilets? And that's a heck of a lot of wastewater going down through your drains, through our pipes, and arriving at Malabar facility. But can you imagine how much there is when it's raining? When we have wet weather, you'll find there's normally a lot of ingress of storm water coming into the plant as well. On a normal sort of dry weather day, we can deal on average 450 million litres a day that we treat. But when we have wet weather, 
the stormwater ingress basically bumps that up to up to 1,300 million litres a day. That's a lot of flow coming into the plant. So we're in the underground initial treatment area. Yes. What, what's, what's happening here? So basically we're in the start of our treatment process at Malabar. So this is the screenings area. Uh, we've got um, a series of six core screens and fine screen, which basically remove the larger items from the influent coming into the plant. So your items like paper and cotton tips, wet wipes and sanitary items, toys, you know, whatever you flush down the toilet, the bigger items are going to get removed on this process. So how are these things that are getting flushed down into our waterways initially screened and then organised? As the influent comes in um, and it goes to these screens, the screenings are removed and then conveyed away for further processing. Basically, it's, it's highly automated, and so we have operators and maintainers here that monitor the system via our DCS or ANSCADA system to make sure that everything's running optimally and efficiently. You can hear there are a lot of fan noises in the background and as you probably guessed, keeping a sewage treatment facility properly ventilated uh, is a pretty big priority. But it seemed to be working quite well as I couldn't smell anything too bad just yet. This is the next step in the screening process. So yeah, once the influent goes through the screenings process, so if you think about flow going through a big series of filter papers, that's what the screening room does. And then your influent goes through basically our grit removal area. So we have four aerated tanks and that aeration process really helps the heavy inorganic matter like sand and gravel to settle out and then it moves on to the next process. And just note that, you know, the screenings and grit that is removed from the influent process, that's actually sort of treated and dewatered further and then trucked off site and reused um, sustainably. So we actually don't have any of the removed grit or screenings going to landfill. It's actually all 100% beneficially reused. So where are we now? So we're in our sedimentation tank area. We've been through the screenings and grit process and essentially a lot of that process was covered but now we're in our sedimentation room and you can see the sedimentation tanks are uncovered so you get to have a look at the effluent and the sewage that's been treated. Yeah so there's different barred off areas and they've all got little water pools here and yeah you can see where the waste has come in so it's called the sedimentation area. What happens from this point? So what we have is basically the, the um, sewage or the, the effluent sort of going through a series, oh, it's like six tanks in, in parallel, and they're moving at slow velocity. And essentially what happens is your solids settle out, go to the bottom of the tank, your fats and oils and greasy matter float to the top. And because the flow is going through a slow velocity, there's enough time for the solids to settle out and then for that grease fat layer to, to float to the top. And then what we have is scrapers located at the bottom of the tank that scrape those settled solids out and remove them. And then we have scrapers that also remove that 
fat, oil and grease layer from the top of the effluent and remove that. Because they're uncovered, you, it, this, it's a little bit stronger, the smell in here. Yeah, so it's uncovered, so you can appreciate that, that sort of eggy smell that you get with, with sewage. Um, it's a little bit more prevalent here because it is uncovered. So we have a series of bars around the open parts of the process just for safety reasons. You know, we've got to make sure that there's no risk of... You don't want anyone falling in? Well, we don't want to fall in. No, no, thank you. <laughs> That's not um, something I would wish on anyone at all. Basically the end of the treatment process located underground and here we are back in the wide open space. It is nice to be back outside in the fresh air. Yeah, no, it's, it's nice. So it, it gives you an appreciation basically. We walked all the way down, have come up and that's the end of the process and back here we are above ground. So let's talk a little bit more about the water that is treated then um, goes out back into the ocean. Yeah, it is. So once the influent goes to that screenings process, a grit removal process, and goes to the sedimentation tanks where the solids are removed and that oil and grease layer is removed, it's uh, the effluent's basically conveyed via decline tunnel and goes out to our deep ocean outfall. Essentially what it is is the effluent is conveyed about 3.6 kilometres out to sea, about 80 metres below the water and the effluents release through a series of about 200 diffusers at a slow rate and the wave action and the seawater and the sunlight basically work together to break down that wastewater and disinfectant and that's what happens at Malabar. Bianca McPherson from Sydney Water. So let me get this straight. My poo ends up in the ocean. Well, at Malabar it does, but there are other treatment plants around that deposit the wastewater back into dams and lakes. Um, But how about we take a step back and imagine if you had no toilet? What would you do with your waste? And how would you manage it if you had no drainage systems to take your poo far, far away? Well, that's a reality for a number of Indigenous communities in rural Alaska, where the lack of sanitation facilities means that they have to get rid of it themselves, and doing so is making a lot of them very sick. Dr Dina Pham is a research principal at the Institute for Sustainable Futures at UTS. Dina was one of the researchers who travelled to Alaska last year, looking at developing a sanitation solution for these communities. There's about 300 plus communities and they range from communities right on the Baltic Sea. One of the communities we went to was Wales, 50 miles from Russia, for example, on the Baltic Sea, right down to a little bit closer to to civilization, I suppose you could call, um, in more tundra lands. But they spread out over a very broad area. So one of the communities took us 12 hours to get there. We had to fly with two small planes to get there, a four-seater plane. So, and the other one was a little bit closer. So it just depends on what communities you're talking about, but they're, they're quite remote. And generally. the reasons you went over there to address those sanitation issues, mm. what, what do you mean? What, what, what was happening here that needed to be addressed? Mm. So for about 20 or 30 years, the Department of Environment Conservation has been looking at how to improve um, the sanitation systems for these communities. And what I mean by that is they're actually using something called a honey bucket. So a honey bucket is just a bucket, 25-litre bucket with a bag with a toilet seat on the top, and that's used as a toilet. And so what people do with those toilets, these honey buckets, is collect them, 
once every couple of days or once a week, take them to a centralised hopper and dump them in there. And then once they're full, they're actually centrally collected and dumped into a, a sewage lagoon. So there's lots of points in that system, sanitation system, where there's health implications. You know, people are sloshing the bags around, getting covered with sewage, using their snowmobiles to transport these bags and buckets to the sewage lagoon. So you have potential for, you know, spread of pathogens and health risks all around that system. Not to mention that when you collect these honey bucket bags and pop them into a sewage lagoon, they actually freeze in winter, but in summer they're absolutely stinky, you know. Mm. And at some point you need to remove them. So, you know, one of the communities we went to, the way they remove them is actually once the lagoon is full, they'd go out there with guns, shoot the bags open, and then use a, a rake to pull out the bags. So there's because they're not biodegradable bags. Because so there's lots of problems with that sort of sanitation system. What about even the collection of water? Because they're not mm. attached to a sewerage grid because they're so far out in rural area. But at the same time, just collecting water for their own consumption, is there like scare of cross-contamination there? Yeah, I think there is. Um, depending where these communities are, they have different sources of water. So one of the communities on the Baltic Sea we went to had two different water sources coming from natural springs. So they use the same snowmobiles to dump their sewage as they do to collect the water. So you can imagine there might be cross-contamination there. But also you're collecting that water in, say, 40 litre buckets and then take them back to their home. So from the point you collect that water, put it into a bucket, bring it to the home, and then you have this bucket in your home and then you have to collect water out of it with a scooping device, which in some places you're putting your whole body in there to get it out. That's another point of cross-contamination for the water. So there's lots of health issues, stomach problems with the sort of water people are using. But in other communities, for example, that's one community, in other communities, the majority of their water source comes from rain. So they're collecting rain off their roofs into open water buckets and that's another potential site for cross-contamination. So, yeah, we were looking at not just how do you manage a sewage system to provide health benefits, but also what about the water system? How do we provide a water system for people which isn't centralised because it's much too expensive to pipe water from a source, manage that centralised system and maintain it. But how do you do that so it increases the health benefits? It's a complicated problem. And so this is what you were looking at when you were over there in April of last year. That's right. So you were, you were, you were there for a couple of weeks. In, yeah, two communities. How do you start to address something like this or how do you go about it? Yeah. Well, our role was really really around community engagement. So it's pretty much impossible to set up meetings with anyone to chat to them about these things unless you're in the community. So we went in with the view that we stay for two weeks in these communities and be around to ask questions around how are these water and sanitation systems working? What are the challenges of doing that? And it can't be a tick box research approach. We can't have structured interviews where you ask people, right, now how much water do you use? And where do you get your sewage from? And where do you put your buckets when they're done? Because it's a improvised sort of system. And also... They're very remote communities, so the way you communicate with them are really around stories. So what we did was sleep in the library, the community library in the um, Baltic Sea region community, Wales, for a couple of weeks. We met the parents who came through. We ended up giving talks to students in each of the levels in the school. You became much more familiar with the community, and then people would see you around for two weeks. They'd invite you over for dinner, or you'd be able to go to see the tribal council and have a chat about this. But it isn't what 
these remote communities are, are familiar with are fly-in and fly-out consultants. So people fly in in the morning, potentially don't talk to anyone, and then fly in the afternoon once they've gathered their data. What we didn't want to do was that type of consultancy. We really wanted to get stories about how people are managing their water and sewage and what are the challenges in doing that in practice, and that requires much more time. So we just had to... Um, sit in on bingo games and you know do these really fun sort of things with people until they build you better build a bit of trust and we're very open to talking about you know what they thought the problems were with the system and how they thought they might be able to overcome those challenges with a different type of system. Yeah. So what sort of systems once you were over there and you developed this trust with these different communities, actually looking at putting something into practice or you know installing a new system, uh, what were some of the options or alternatives that you looked at to what they were currently doing? Mm. Because they're such remote communities and and the community of Wales and the Baltic Sea is pretty much cut off from anyone coming in out that community for about nine to ten months because it's frozen solid they have the weather's between minus 50 in winter to about 10 degrees when we were there it was about minus 25 it's very hard to bring in um, materials to maintain systems or expertise so what we need to make sure we did was whatever system we came up with had to be maintained within the community had to be low cost to the capital cost but also the maintenance cost over the long term there's not an economy a vibrant economy in those communities so there's not a lot of money going around and actually the services for just collecting and removing the honey bucket is something like 10 to 20 dollars a month in the other community we went to they were paying zero to have their honey buckets collected so they were just dumping them in hoppers in the middle of the community. So it was really important for us when we decided on the final system to have it low cost, low maintenance and think about how do we build capacity for the community to manage those systems themselves. So what we ended up coming up with was a design where we had a bag system like the honey bucket but it was was sealed and rotated the waste and potentially could be composted on site with biodegradable bags. Mm. Uh, It's necessary to look for these different alternatives because I guess a standard sewage or piping system Mm. wouldn't work so far out in these rural communities. Yeah, and they have been tried. You know, there's been a a vacuum system trial, a centralised vacuum system, and they're high cost, for example, for energy to be able to pump sewage around. And also, because of the um, extreme sort of weather patterns, they just don't function. The pipes freeze, they crack. There's lots of problems with the, the pumping mechanisms particularly for the vacuum system. So even though idealistically communities say, look, we can see bigger communities with pipe systems and pipe water system where we want that, obviously it'd be easier to pipe water to their homes. But the reality of the situation is they're so remote and the weather is so extreme, you just can't put in those systems there. And really, they couldn't afford to be able to pay to maintain those systems or the capital cost for those systems in the first place. Do you think that might even mean that we do some, obviously, two completely different contexts there, very rural communities and then perhaps more metro establishments? Mm. But is there anything that we might be able to take from this to be like, hey, if we're able to install a different system here and it operates on its own way, why can't we reevaluate what we're doing here to look for a more sustainable sanitation method or, or mm. the way to handle what we do here in a metro context? Yeah, because that's what came up when we started this project. Because you're talking about 300 communities, they're living in completely different geographical locations. One 
has rainwater and this village is in a tundra sort of area and then there's this remote the other community went to was right in the Baltic Sea and right opposite Russia and really extreme weather events. And you have to design those systems within those contexts for how water is collected, how the community themselves manage their systems, whether the money's available for that. And I think you're right. When you're designing alternative systems of water and sanitation, you really need to take into consideration the context you're going to put it in. Is there enough of a water supply to justify a particular type of flushing toilet? If not, shouldn't it be a vacuum system which uses 10% of the volume of water to flush the toilet or a dry system if you're talking about a complete desert context? So the challenge with the Alaska Water and Sewer Challenge project was that they wanted one system for 300 communities. And that's, it's really complicated because each of these communities come from very different geographical contexts. They have different cultural practices around using water. Some people use showers and have a um, washateria, which is a place that people can shower. And other communities have sweat lodges. So they have steam baths and that's how they shower. They don't use a water shower. So designing a water system for those communities is very different to designing a water system for a community that showers. Dr. Dina Pham, Research Principal at the Institute for Sustainable Futures. You're listening to Think Sustainability on 2SER. Today, we're talking human waste. And Ellen, you know where all the worst poo and pee stories come from. Drunk people? Well, that's one. The other is... Babies! It was probably the first baby I ever had and no one had told me about meconium. So the literal first encounter I had with it was changing it and it was disgusting. That's Kara. She's a mother of five and a well-experienced player in the world of baby poo. Meconium is a green, tarry substance that's formed to make the baby's first poo. The Greek translation is poobijuice. It's top level gross. It's all of the things from your inside your womb. So it's like your amniotic fluid and stuff that the baby has swallowed over the time of your pregnancy. Luckily, my babies were wearing nappies during the time of it happening. If I had to have been using cloth nappies, I probably would have thrown them away rather than washed them because it's just gross. You hear so many horror stories about baby poo or exploding diapers, but that one is pretty high up there on the gross scale. Something to look forward to, hey Jake? Oh, can't wait. <laughs> Listening to that and hearing Caro mention cloth nappies, which are the ones you can wash and reuse. In a situation like that, I wouldn't be so keen to wash them myself either. Enter disposable nappies. Cheap, convenient, and you can chuck out the meconium. No washing necessary. But as we know, disposable nappies are pretty unsustainable as it is. Hi, I'm Melissa Edwards. I'm a senior lecturer in the UTS Business School. In Australia, we use 5.6 million disposable nappies per day. So that's a lot. And those nappies are, of course, going into landfill. So if you think about that over the period of a year, uh, the figures are estimated to be about 800 million Disposable nappies are going directly into landfill. Uh, Regular lifetime of a nappy in landfill is roughly 200 to 500 years, it's estimated. And so those materials um, also have a toxic 
effect in land as they biodegrade over that period of time. And they're very energy intensive in their manufacture. So there's a couple of different aspects to what we call the life cycle um, of a disposable nappy that are problematic if we're thinking about sustainability. There is another alternative out there that's neither cloth nor plastic and disposable. The biodegradable nappy is based on a philosophy of um, what we call the cradle to cradle. So with the disposable nappy, it's going from the cradle to the grave. You make it, use it, chuck it. The cradle to cradle is about trying to extend the useful lifetime of a product and it applies to a whole different broad range of consumer um, non-durable products. This particular design of the G-nappy or G-diaper, the one that you've just mentioned, uh, has got two components to it. And um, one of those components is a sort of insert, and that insert is compostable. So it actually can be what we call restorative, and the human waste can go into compost, and then that can go back into the soil and actually enhance the nutritional component of the soil. So that's one component. And the other component is the outer layer of the nappy, um, which is a reusable component. Uh, And so that outer layer of the nappy can be used over and over again throughout the lifetime of the baby while it's in the nappy. And it can also then be recirculated uh, between um, parents and used for other babies as well. So there's a real extension of the lifetime of that outer layer of the product So the nappy that Melissa is talking about is called the G-Nappy. Jason Graham Nye and his wife Kim are the founders of G-Nappy, which operates in the US and Europe. The biodegradable nappies are available online. However, they're not currently available in Australia, but Jason says for now they have their targets set elsewhere, childcare centres. We have uh, come up with an alternative to a regular disposable nappy that doesn't use polypropylene plastic. It uses non-GMO cornstarch as its main material. And we, we supply that to childcare as well as uh, wipes. And then we collect those items once they're used every couple of days. And we take that waste and turn it into a resource uh, in the form of compost that we can return back to the childcare or in, cases, in some cases we sell. So we're really turning a waste into a resource. The nappy service they provide for childcare centres here in Australia is called the G-Cycle. And as Jason says, it's easier for them than trying to crack into the market. Yeah, it's a tricky space in, in Australia where you've got one major brand of nappy, uh, Kimberly Clark's Huggies, so, and, and you've got two very big retailers in Coles and Woolworths, and it's, it's incredibly price sensitive and very difficult for a smaller brand to come in there. So that's um, why we think this an opportunity to partner up with childcare services. And really, we're saving them. We think we're pretty sure we'll save them money on their waste management costs, but also we're going to get all their babies out of plastic nappies. And I'm not sure if you've ever worn a plastic nappy before, but um, my wife actually had to wear the pants just after my son was born, and she said, based on that experience, she was never going to let her kids wear disposable nappies. So there's definitely a health benefit there for kids too. Jason and Kim's G-Nappy business in the US and Europe also has B Corp certification. Let's bring back Mel Edwards from earlier. Uh, B Corp is a certification system and B Corps are organisations that are 
serving some purpose. Um, predominantly, it's defined as a social purpose, um, but also the environmental uh, purpose or the environmental aspect, as we think about in a definition of sustainability, comes into that B Corp certification. So companies that wish to become uh, B Corps have to go through a certain certification process and receive a number of points. And th- that point system then enables them to be certified and operate as a B Corp. So why become a B Corp in the first place? Here's Jason. When my wife and I started the company, we we were young parents and we really wanted to run the business differently. We just felt that corporations and families don't go well together and we came into entrepreneurship quite old. We were 35 at the time. So we did things like we built an on-site childcare for all of our teams and we offered very extended maternity leave and flex-friendly hours and just ran the business so it worked more with, with families and then B Corporations launched. We had the company go through their assessment, which is a which is a, a look into how the corporate governance, how we treat our employees, how we make the product. And uh, yeah, we sort of we passed that. And every couple of years we get reassessed and we've managed to improve our score. It's essentially codifying this notion of a triple bottom line company, a company that's focused just as much on profit as it is on people and planet. Jason Graham Nye, founder of G Cycle. So with these compostable, biodegradable nappies only available for childcare services, it might be some time before we see them on the market. And if they do become available, the nappy buyer is going to have some questions for sure, like are they clean, how expensive are they, and do I have to have a compost to chuck out the nappy liner? So we asked Mum Kara. Perhaps I would, but I find just disposable nappies these days are convenient. Um, They're pretty cheap now compared to 10, 20 years ago. But if there was a biodegradable option that wasn't so expensive, I might consider using it. Thanks for listening to the show. Think Sustainability is produced with the assistance of the University of Technology Sydney and 2SER. For more information about what you've heard today, head along to our website, 2SER.com forward slash Think Sustainability. You can also subscribe to us on your favourite podcast app. Just search for Think Sustainability. I'm Jake Morecambe. I'm Ellen Levita. See you next week. <laughs>